Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To get even more content from me and Andrew, sign up for the Focus Compounding app. The Focus Compounding app costs $7.95 a month. It comes with a bunch of 2,000-word articles from me each week, a fresh batch of five-minute videos from the both of us, along with one bonus extra-long episode of the podcast each Saturday, and immediate access to our complete backlog of 200-plus episodes. To sign up, go to focuscompounding.com slash app or wherever apps are sold. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome back to the Focus Compounding Podcast. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn. His name is Jeff Gannon. And we have a very special guest on with us today, Jacob McDonough, the author of Capital Allocation. Jacob, I got to tell you, I don't think we've had a guest on the podcast in quite some time. So you're a very special guest and we're very excited to have you on. No pressure or anything. That's awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast and recent subscriber to the app. So you guys Look are- that. And he, and he plugs our app for us. This guy, you, you come on whenever you want. You can come on whenever you want. Um, I guess a little bit of a background to how this all came about. Um, we met with Jacob. We were in Nashville. We were on a trip and he reached out to us, knew we were going to be in Nashville, and we uh, met up in our hotel lobby <laughs> and uh, talked about stocks for a couple hours. And he had uh, his new book that I think it was already out at the time. It was already out. And I think on that trip, Jeff read your book probably two or three times because he ran out of things to read. Uh, it was funny. I, I could tell he finished the book. And then like the next day, I'm like, you're on page 10 again. Like, what are you doing? And he's just going through with, uh, with a, um, you know, a pen again and, and underlying new stuff. So you said that you, you know, really enjoy the book and a lot of people as well on Fintwit have said how much they really enjoy the book as well. So definitely props to you. My first question about, you know, um, capital allocation is really like, what made you decide to write another Buffett book? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the keyword there, another Buffett book is, is a big one. That was one worry maybe is that there's already so much written about Buffett, but uh, I guess I enjoyed reading as much as I could on Buffett, all the books, all the letters to shareholders. And I thought they're all great, but in each book, I loved all the little anecdotes on financial data. That was my favorite part of all the books. And I was a little surprised that there wasn't, it wasn't more uh, financial data. I kept reading more and more Buffett books, expecting to find one, I guess. Um, and uh, I enjoyed, I thought it'd be fun to go through some of the old annual reports just to see what him and other investors could have saw in that time period. Um, and they were really hard to find some of the old annual reports and especially for some sub subsidiary companies, some companies they invested in. So uh, since I enjoyed it and since it was tough to find, I thought, you know, it might be useful for somebody who uh, might not have the time or energy to, to go gather all the old annual reports. Um, that was one. And uh, something that gave me a little more inspiration too was uh, a couple books I read. One was by Michael Mobison. I think it was called The Success Equation and some books by Nassim Taleb, um, Fooled by Randomness or Black Swan. He kind of talks about the narrative fallacy and how uh, humans are usually more storytellers um, and, uh, cause I guess we're biased cause we start with the end result and try to fit like a cause and effect, fit a story, um, you know, that would fit the, the answer, I guess you can see. So I think my book's a little guilty of that too, because I'm biased by seeing how successful Berkshire was, but I think presenting the financial data from a perspective an investor would have saw at that point in time, I think is a step in the right direction. And. I think readers can come to their own conclusion, even if they disagree with something I said or disagree with other books out there. Uh, you know, just presenting the data in a way readers can uh, can experience it themselves and come to their own conclusions. I thought would be pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. And you actually inspired a lot of content that we've done. You know, whenever you've seen Jeff recently write about either like capital, like reallocation, and sort of topics around that, that was inspired from your book. Um, so, you know, it was, it was, you know, definitely great. And it's funny because we've talked about it before and our, both of our favorite chapters in like the snowball, for example, there it's, it's his BPL days, you know, it's when he was still small and really just grinding it out every single day. I mean, he still is today, but you know, just being completely fanatical about investing. Um, you know, so I thought that was great. I guess so like from your point of view, I mean, 
we could, you know, talk about um, him investing in Berkshire and everything like that. I mean, do you think his investment in Berkshire was even like, uh, was it actually a mistake? You know how he jokes about how it was, you know, one of his worst investments he ever made. And of yeah, course that's kind of tongue in cheek. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. And um, I was going back and forth on that a little bit. And I think Jeff reading your capital reallocation, um, you know, blog post or whatever you sent out after we met kind of made me think of it from a different perspective too, which is great. But um, while I was writing the book, I guess my perspective was, I kept seeing through the years how textiles dragged down the return on equity uh, for the overall business. So that hurt. And then I also looked at how national indemnity today is so valuable. The, you know, there's so many valuable pieces at Berkshire today that BPL, you know, the partnership could have owned hundred percent of that. And today we're talking many, many billions of dollars. And instead, you know, BPL just owned, I think it got up to 65% or, or something back in the old days of Berkshire. Um, so those two things, uh, as well as Buffett saying it was a mistake, kind of was leading me down that, that path of, of, um, you know, thinking it was more of a mistake. Um, but in your capital reallocation blog post, it made me think of it more as like in terms of leverage. So, um, the leveraging from, I think in 1962, when Buffett first invested, you know, the price to book value price to book ratio might've been just like 0.37 or something like that. And uh, in 85, when I ended my book, it was uh, I think like, you know, 1.6, 1.7 price to book value. So like leveraging uh, capital, selling at a discount and then being able to get it to a premium that uh, drove a good amount of returns. Um, and so I think in the end, looking at leverage, I think um, it's uh, makes a good, good case where uh, um, since he was able to reallocate capital so well that it, you know, is successful in that way. But um, then again, it's, it was a little risky because when I'm looking back, uh, you know, there might've been some strokes of luck too. Um, like in 1965 and 66, Berkshire made quite a bit of profits. Mm -hmm. And um, part of that was because Buffett was able to cut costs in 65. So that's, um, something that, uh, you know, a great manager could do, but then, uh, the late sixties and into the seventies, the textile operations was losing quite a bit of money. So, um, to me, that seems like, you know, even with the great manager there later, they were still losing money. So, uh, uh, a little bit of luck in 65 and 66, uh, to be able to actually get capital out of textiles and into other businesses. A lot of it came from the profits they made in those two years, which I really didn't realize until researching the book. Um, in 65, cost of goods sold dropped by around 10%, which, um, you know, at 10% might not seem crazy, but in overall dollar amounts, it was pretty huge given that, that you know, the textile business was really low margin business um, and the valuation was so low. So I think 10% reduction in cost of sales was around $4.9 million and, you know, uh, $4.9 million value. And in 62, when Buffett first invested, the valuation was just 12.1 million, I believe. So wow. the cost savings in that one year was pretty major. Um, and uh, Berkshire also had some tax loss carry forwards, tax credits at the time from losses in previous years. So, um, you know, those losses would, I mean, the tax credits would expire in five years. So it was really important that um, for those to be used, they had to be used quick. And uh, so the cost savings Buffett had in those first two years, cost savings Berkshire had, um, they were tax free. So that really led to major free cash flow, uh, tax free cash flow. Um, and that's where a lot of the capital moved from textiles into stocks and bonds for a bit and then into some acquisitions. So, um, so yeah, I, I think uh, he leveraged that capital in a great way. And do you remember if the tax rate was like 50% or something back then? Do you know what tax rate Berkshire was getting the savings at? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I don't know exactly, but the tax rate was definitely higher. Uh, I mean, even higher before the recent tax changes in the last few years. Yeah, so that's a probably a very valuable NOL. Right. I mean, how much do you think, do you think he... 
um, that was a big factor or consideration in investing in Berkshire? Yeah, I think, I think it was definitely a positive that he would have seen. Um, but given their history of losses, you know, they'd have a, uh, have some gains every now and then being cyclical, mm -hmm. have some profits every now and then, but given it expired in five years, I'm not exactly sure how confident you could be that those could actually be put to good use. Um, and then I've, I've been curious too, uh, before entering the company, if he really thought he could squeeze costs out of there or not. I think some of the biographies talk about um, Seabury Stanton, the previous manager. I think they refer to him having a, a secretary who had a secretary and <laughs> they call his office like a penthouse. Um, yeah. So, you know, if Buffett saw that, maybe he saw room he could uh, reduce costs even though I would expect some overhead like that to show up in SG&A. Uh, so I don't know if, if this, those costs, you know, we're in the cost of goods sold line and uh, that's where the reduction came from, or if it was more like unprofitable business lines, they shut down or, or what, but um, you know, if he saw a room, he could cut costs, then I'm sure those tax loss carry forwards would be pretty valuable. So there were two things about Berkshire that surprised me a lot when reading your book. One is it in many ways is a much worse net net than even ones I could find today. Um, it had a very poor 10 year record going into it. But the other one is that it's capital allocation before Buffett came in was much better than that you see with net nets. Normally they actually bought back stock. They were closing down plants over time. They were getting out of certain businesses. So usually you can find companies that are, uh, don't have as many operating losses or like almost cumulatively not making money over a decade. But buybacks, which, you know, they were doing are really unusual and must have been even more unusual in the 60s. So what did you find about Berkshire in the time before Buffett bought it that surprised you? Yeah, uh, like you said right there, um, it's pretty rare for a company back in those times to be repurchasing, repurchasing stock, especially as heavily as Berkshire was. So that was really unique. Um, yeah, and I definitely think it's, it's something that would have caught the eye of Buffett and probably a big reason he invested. Um, but uh, seeing that it's a net net and that they have bought back stock and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and that uh, if he wanted to control a net net, say to reallocate capital, uh, you know, management and shareholders who are already obviously okay with reallocating that capital, mm -hmm. I think that might have... Uh, might have given more courage or more incentive to, to jump in in a control stake. Yeah, that's interesting. So you wrote that acquiring all of Berkshire was a mistake. And, you know, obviously Buffett has said that as well. Um, are you being unfair? <laughs> yeah. And I, I think uh, looking back and especially reading Jeff's blog post about leverage made me think slightly unfair. Um, but one thing I enjoyed looking at too at the time, uh, their investment in Amex, American Express. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I guess I was surprised to see when he reallocated capital away from the textile business, um, to, he bought American Express stock for Berkshire specifically. And that was you know, three or four years after BPL bought American Express stock. Um, and the price was quite a bit higher than um, than it was when BPL invested during the salad oil scandal uh, in maybe like 63 or something like that. Um, but uh, I guess I had, it was interesting looking at some of those cases where, you know, he was an investor, he was buying, thinking what he could have done um, with an American Express float. You know, he could have reallocated capital at an overcapitalized company like American Express, uh, you know, they did through blue chip stamps and um, some of the other stocks they bought, um, Detroit International Bridge Company, Pinkertons, and then Seas Candy, you know, that they acquired. All three of those were very overcapitalized. Um, I was surprised to see how much cash was on the balance sheet for those. Some of those companies cash made up cash uh, was like half of the asset value on the balance sheet. So, you know, there was he could have reallocated capital leveraged, um, you know, an overcapitalized business, but one that had high returns on equity, I think in other ways, obviously that's a little bit of hindsight bias there too, but uh, it's interesting looking at a company like American express who only had maybe 5% of its assets in stocks. Um, but uh, someone like, you know, Buffett or Munger taking over really could have uh, 
invested the assets in a very different way. Got it. Um, for national indemnity, can you talk about, um, and you, you laid it out and you also laid it out in um, you know, the book, uh, he paid 8.6 million for the company. Um, do you think that was, I mean, like, what do you think he was looking at at the time when he came to invest in that company? Yeah, that was something uh, I really enjoyed looking at that piece. I learned a lot uh, in 2017 letter to shareholders. He kind of wrote about this. And at the time I read that and I didn't really take much out of it. Um, just reading his letter. I didn't realize how important that was, but when I was actually in the financial statements, seeing national indemnity, uh, they own stocks that were equal about to the shareholders equity value on the uh, balance sheet. You know, shareholders funds were invested in common stocks and then the float was in bonds and then some cash. Um, so what he was saying was he looked at it as uh, Berkshire, the uh, parent company before acquiring national indemnity had a portfolio of stocks and it would have, whether they made the acquisition or not, so he could have had 6.7 million of stocks at Berkshire, or he could buy um, national indemnity and have 6.7 million of stocks within national indemnity. So that portion of the purchase price, he discounted, he just threw that part away. So you're left with the goodwill, which in this case was about $1.9 million. Um, and so what was important there was um, the underwriting profitability and then how much float you're getting. Um, and in this case, float was like 10 times uh, higher than the goodwill they paid. And they had a history of underwriting profits. So Buffett could sit there and say, um, you know, as long as they break even, you know, underwriting can turn a little worse than it was historically. As long as they break even, floats 10 times the goodwill I'm paying. Um, rates were a lot higher, were higher back then than today. So, you know, at 10 times, uh, higher flow. If the flow just earned 1%, you know, that would be a 10% return on investment of your goodwill annually. Uh, so that's pretty low assumptions. Um, so, you know, the flow could have a higher return or maybe underwriting losses could happen from time to time. But I thought that was really interesting how um, you guys on your podcast do this a lot. Like Jeff with like frost is one example that comes to mind, you know, looking at deposits per, per branch or, deposits per share, you can boil it down into what really matters in the stock and not just like price of book, price earnings, return on equity. Uh, you know, in, in this case, Buffett could boil it down to what's the goodwill I'm going to pay? Uh, what's the cost of float? How much float? Uh, and I've heard him say that, but it, it didn't really stick with me how that's literally the only thing that mattered. Um, once I didn't, that didn't stick with me until I saw the balance sheet of national indemnity and saw that okay, the stockholders equity value is actually exactly how much they have in, in stocks on the balance sheet. So I found that pretty interesting. Got it. Um, let's go on to talk about um, when he invested in a, a company that's actually near where I grew up, Rockford, Illinois, the bank. Wow. What is are your thoughts? Yeah. There? What's that? Is the bank still there? I don't even know. I think it probably is, right? Yeah. But I assume they changed the laws in uh, Illinois so that they can now merge all those things together yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Do you know how he came across the company? Do you know how he came across the company? Oh, um, so I was able to find a lot more companies in Moody's manuals than I thought I would. Seize Candy, uh, the Rockford Bank, uh, National Indemnity were all in Moody's manuals, which I was surprised. I thought some were more private companies, but some of these were, you know, small cap stocks that traded lightly that, uh, you know, still made it into Moody's manuals and stuff. So my guess is a Moody's manual, but that's just my speculation from yeah. himself. Um, but yeah, that, that's a really interesting, uh, bank too, just because, um, here's an example where when I was studying this, um, it reminded me a lot of frost and that's because I read Jeff's write up on frost. I read, and I listened to you guys podcast and hear you talk about it so much. Um, so when I started studying Rockford Bank, I definitely went back and, you know, studied your write-ups, but um, the bank, uh, I guess the key thing I took from your write-ups was economies of scale. Um, you know, it's not just the biggest business. Economies of scale take place. Uh, they go into effect at certain points and they don't at others. And in a bank's case, I learned uh, that um, 
at the branch level is where some economies of scale come into effect. The Rockford Bank just had one, one branch, one location, because that was the law at the time in Illinois. Um, and uh, so at first glance, you might not think one branch is much of an you know, economy of scale, but um, in the you know, late 60s or 70s, they had $100 million of deposits at one branch, which adjusted for inflation blows away anything I can see today. And today you have so much better technology in terms of mobile banking and um, you know, stuff on the internet where you would think the efficiency, efficiency would be way up today. Um, but um, yeah, the uh, deposits per branch, just their one branch were massive at Rockford and that led to non-interest expense, um, you know, gains over the, you know, over the time Buffett held it, uh, non-interest expense as a percentage of like the income that would come in, kept getting lower and lower. And um, so that was a great find on Buffett's part. It's too bad they had to dispose of the investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about Geico. And whenever I think about Geico at Buffett, I actually think about the security I like best, the old uh, you know, newspaper ad that when he talked about Geico. So maybe, and it's actually one of my favorite stories because it showed how dedicated and curious Buffett was early on in his career and still, you know, throughout, but you hear the story of him like knocking on the door, right. To talk about insurance and stuff like that. So I'm kind of curious to hear about your thoughts on Buffett investing in Geico. Yeah. Geico was a fun one to look at too. And, uh, when writing the book, maybe I was a little nervous of, I didn't want to step on any toes of other books that were already written and Geico and Washington Post are two investments that have been covered so well already. So maybe I was a little nervous going into, into researching that, but I'm, I'm glad I still looked into it. It was a really interesting read, mostly because seeing how close it got to bankruptcy mm-hmm. and reading the annual reports as it led up to that, that time period. It's a little scary, honestly, because um, you know before they were on the brink of bankruptcy, they had 28 straight years of underwriting profits. You know, the business was a, a great business and strong competitive advantages. So it made, it created a ton of wealth for people who bought it, held on to it. Um, Buffett was one person who did not hold on to it. You know, he, he sold to buy something cheaper at the time. And, you know, his returns were still great even without Geico. But uh, they had, it was 28 straight years of underwriting profits. Then they have one year of an underwriting loss. But even in that year, they still had a high return on equity from gains and investments. I want to say maybe 17% return on equity. Um, so I guess looking at being a long-term holder, if you, if you own that stock, it's like, okay, one bad year out of 29, and I still get a return on equity of 17%. And then one year later, you know, year 30, they're on the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, so it's, it was a little scary and uh, interesting to read how the tone, you know, in management and in the report goes from seems like a, you know, confident, successful business. And just within a year or two, it's just, it all comes to a halt. And I think the main thing I see is, you know, is pretty leveraged. Um, operating leverage was pretty high. I want to say four or five times um, leverage in terms of the premiums they're writing versus the, uh, the equity they had in the business. Um, so that's, that's one way you can get off the tracks is just too much leverage. But, um, but still, it, uh, you know, the industry downturned, the stock market went down to uh, all at the same time when they're, you know, had a ton of leverage. So uh, I guess that's the risk you, you play in uh, owning insurance and companies, banks, and uh, companies that are highly leveraged. But it was an interesting business. But, um, you know, in some of the books I read, people covered how the competitive advantage was still intact. And looking at the annual report, you can definitely see that in terms of the, uh, the expense ratio. The expense ratio never budged. It was, it was still low. You know, the overhead of Geico um, stayed really strong. It was just the, uh, the loss ratio. Uh, you know, they underpriced their policies. And um, so you knew uh, if they, if they uh, bounced back and could avoid bankruptcy, um, the competitive advantage was still there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and we actually were, we just, it's funny, we just did a podcast and Jeff was talking about debt for companies. Um, and Berkshire, they, um, they used very long-term debt for funding. Um, and I was curious, like they issued 20 year debt, uh, you wrote in your book in 1967 for national indemnity acquisition. 
Can you talk a little bit about that and why they chose, mm-hmm. I mean, that type of debt? I guess we know why it's long-term debt, but kind yeah. of talk through that. Yeah. Um, I guess one thing that surprised me reading the book is there was a little more debt used than I would have thought. Uh, in general, um, you know, there, I never think compared to like other companies like a GE or, you know, some other big name companies, um, you know, their leverage still was pretty modest, but uh, just from listening to the annual meetings over the years and, you know, what I heard of Berkshire, it was a little more debt than I would have assumed. Um, but uh, from a liquidity standpoint, it was always incredibly strong. Um, in this case, it seemed to be when they made an acquisition, they take out really long-term debt. So anytime, you know, cash would have to outflow out of the company instead of, uh, you know, instead of actual their cash or selling stocks, or their cash, you know, leaving the company and maybe causing some sort of liquidity crunch that never really seemed to happen. Pretty much all their acquisitions seem to be, um, you know, they take on debt that's really long year, 20 year debt, but then they pay it off pretty quick or refinance within, you know, five years or less. So maybe one example would be um, with blue chip stamps. Uh, Some of the debt I'm referring to seem to be more in the companies where Charlie Munger was involved, you know, the diversified retailing and blue chip stamps. Um, but blue chip had flow, you know, from the training stamp business. Um, and I always thought that they used the float to buy C's candy in the newspaper, which is, which is kind of true, but, um, the stocks they owned through the float, uh, most years when they made the acquisition, they didn't sell off those stocks. They just took out debt, uh, to make the acquisition. And then, you know, they use profits from other businesses to pay off the debt over the years. And, you know, maybe in some years, the, the portfolio got sold off a little bit, you know, to pay off some of that debt too. Um, but then maybe five years later, they make another acquisition. So they, they take on, you know, debt, kind of like refinancing, I guess, because you're taking on, you know, more debt uh, for the new, new company. And by no means were they over leveraged really at any point in time that I could see especially because they were so diversified in terms of earning streams and, and they were liquid in terms of all the stocks they owned. their assets were pretty liquid, but uh, it just surprised me. Um, and, but I love to see the long-term length of those, uh, the bonds they took out. Yeah. Well, you can see even with um, daily journal that Munger didn't sell uh, stocks to buy, do an acquisition. He took out a tiny margin loan against the stocks that they had. Um, like a really small fraction of the value instead of having to sell like Wells Fargo and Bank of America and whatever else they have so that they wouldn't have to sell it and pay taxes and probably all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I really like that, that approach, I guess. Um, they were uh, cautious with the, the cash they had on hand and um, uh, always had enough liquidity. There was never a point in time. I mean, my book covers, I guess, 20 years of Buffett and there was really no time where like a Geico being on the brink, you know, there's no time where Berkshire really was on the brink that I could see at all. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious. And I'm just from your whole experience writing the book, is there anything that really surprised you about, you know, Buffett and certain like situations, anything that you really took away from it? Yeah. I think the debt was one that stood out, but another thing too was, um, every investment I saw or acquisition they made, I couldn't find one where it seemed they paid a crazy price or, um, you know, an extremely high price, but it wasn't quite as cheap as I was imagining. I was imagining uh, the story of Buffett selling Geico to buy, I think it's Western insurance at two times earnings. And, you know, his early BPL days or in his personal account days before he was a professional investor, there's a lot of stories of like extremely uh, cheap stocks. And there's times that look like deals, you know, through the years when he owns Berkshire, a few stuff come to mind, but in general, there wasn't the two times earnings Western insurance that's growing fast and is a great business. Like there was less of that and more um, buying overcapitalized businesses at a good price um, and, uh, you know, never overpaying, um, but getting uh, good businesses like, um, I mean, Seas Candy and uh, Pinkerton's Detroit International Bridge were all, you know, good companies, overcapitalized, a lot of assets, I mean, cash, you know, that they could uh, reinvest elsewhere. But um, I was expecting to see a little more of those two-time earnings, like uh, crazy 
Delta Dup Club type stuff in there. Yeah. 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 Like even National Indemnity, I guess, uh, maybe 1.3 times book. I don't know exactly what the price would be, but yeah. for some goodwill. So, I mean, I'm sure in the 60s, uh, people would be saying, well, I can get insurers below book. Even today, some value investors would say, why do I want to pay a 30% premium for an insurer, you know? Um, yeah. But it had a good underwriting record and, you know, it could grow over time and all that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I'm sure there was plenty of uh, insurers that would be much cheaper at the day, back in the day. So, and that's long before his seized candy investment. So, you know, he paid up a little bit for national indemnity there uh, in that sense. Um, at what point did Berkshire's float uh, become able to fully invest in stocks or, you know, just hold businesses in general? Yeah, that's, that was something I was interested in too. Um, in the time period my book covered, uh, for the most part, it seemed like um, a traditional insurance company is more like what Berkshire operated as, like the stocks and you know the stocks they owned um, more closely followed their value of you know stockholders' equity, the shareholders' funds, and the flow. Uh, on top of that was you know more bonds and and cash and and stuff like that. Um, and I did look uh, past the period my book goes in the '90s. It definitely seemed like uh, the value of of stocks and everything went over um, shareholders equity. Um, so I think it was in the nineties where um, Berkshire got so big and was so diversified in terms of their earning stream, where they started being able to put money, uh, you know, more than just shareholders funds. Uh, you know, they're able to put the flow into more longer term investments than just bonds, you know, stocks and whole businesses. And um, I read somewhere that, you know, BNSF, the railroad was purchased through insurance company. Um, I'm not exactly sure on that, but, um, but yeah, that would, uh, that would make sense. Um, it seemed to be, I think it was the Berkshire becoming so large is what made them able to actually uh, invest that way. I think if you take over a small insurance company, you can't just right off the bat start buying private companies mm -hmm. as easily. You'd really have to work with your regulators there. Yeah, that also brings up something that was interesting to me. Um, it's very on you. So Geico was right when you said the leverage. So just so we understand this for people, like explain this to people. You said four to five times leverage. You mean um, that they were writing four to five dollars of premiums for every dollar statutory surplus or something equivalent to that? That's right. Yeah. Which is very, very high. So anything more like uh, on the podcast, I might have mentioned, you know, if you're writing two or something, regulators will be comfortable with that. If you're writing three as like progressive or something, they might be very comfortable with that. But four and five are very, very high numbers. Um, so what did you find out about then? Like, think about, I mean, like, is it because of they had like practically 30 years of constant underwriting profits that they were letting them do that? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so I think in the annual report, they actually uh, mentioned that, um, you know, they mentioned the leverage and they say regulators, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but something along the lines of uh, uh, regulators are okay with it because of their historical profits. And then at the time, I think they invested uh, more safely than maybe Buffett or Munger would, you know, when they took it over later on. Uh, so they were more, maybe a little more like progressive would be today in terms of being more leveraged, operating leverage, but less investment risk. But I mean, Geico was still more levered than I think Progressive would be. But. And is that why they managed to lose so much uh, shareholders equity so fast? Yeah. Yeah. And I want to ask you guys about that too. So yeah, I mean, the leverage is what, what caused them to lose, uh, lose money so fast. And I know as a shareholder, after 28 straight years of underwriting profits, you might get a little lulled to sleep maybe, or like uh, you might start to accept, okay, the leverage is getting a little risky, but you know, I'm going to hold on because the business is so good. I'm curious what your guys' thoughts are. Investors can do um, if you own a if you're in a lucky position to own a Geico for a couple of decades. Uh, you know what kind of maintenance research goes into that, and at what point do you sell, and how else how else could you have avoided owning Geico in like '74, I guess, something like that. Yeah, this Geico is a really interesting one because it was its core business that this happened. I've never had that happen. I've been in insurers and, and analyzed them where they were, you know, in trouble, right? but never in something where the losses all happened in something that had been core to them and that they had made money for, you know, three decades or whatever um, consistently. So that's the one that's hard is like how he got comfortable um, with the new CEO, how uh, Buffett did that he was going to turn things around, you know, 
because they, they just loosened who they were writing for, you know? Um, the other thing is premium growth. So very fast premium growth that you see uh, can be a bit of an issue. And actual people reading the annual reports would have had more information on that because policies in force would have been growing really fast. So, which would tell you something about pricing too, right? So they could see the actual policies. The one I was thinking about recently, there was an insurer that worried me a lot. And it was because it kept saying that they were raising their prices, that they, they're, um, they were saying that they were exiting a business line. But the actual number, uh, the actual premiums were going up every year as they were trying to exit. And it's because they were raising their prices all the time, but people kept taking the policies. They couldn't get rid of them, which turned out to mean that they, their policy prices were too low. Like five years later, they admitted it was too low. But if they were trying to raise prices 20% a year and everyone was still renewing, something was wrong with their pricing, you know? And I wonder with Geico how fast policies in force were growing. Yeah, yeah, they were growing fast too. And that's, that's probably one thing that attracted uh, Buffett uh, for sure. Once uh, Jack Byrne took over the next CEO after who took him out of uh, being on the brink of bankruptcy. In the annual report, they're very clear about the, the game plan going forward. And it was um, not just, you know, slower growth. It was, um, you know, they're getting rid of a lot of customers uh, so they're definitely shrinking the business and focusing on profitability. And it talked consistently about underwriting profits, you know, not growth. So, um, so, so yeah, that was definitely something they focused on there in the, you know, the decade or so after, after being close to bankruptcy. Yeah. They left New Jersey for like 20 years or something, uh, which is an infamously tough state for auto insurance because of regulations and stuff on it. Um, but yeah, they, I've always wondered about it. Like how big did Geico actually get in terms of market share at that point? And then how much did it shrink before the nineties when it changed its advertising campaign and Buffett, you know, really took it over fully and all that. Like there must've been a period from the seventies to the nineties where actually it took a while to get back to its prior peak. Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't have that data on me here, but that would be something interesting to look at, uh, going back. Um, and I, it's interesting too, before Buffett, before Berkshire acquired all of Geico, uh, Geico was very profitable, but uh, growth at one point became an issue. And, you know, they were buying back a lot of stock and doing well. The stock did well and the business did well, but uh, growth really kicked into another gear once they became a part of Berkshire. Yeah. And they heavily increased advertising, heavily under Berkshire. You know, I always did wonder about that too. Cause it was like you were saying, it wasn't so much of a growth stock at that time. I'm sure there would have been people complaining, look, progressive is growing much faster than you are, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but it's grown tremendously under Berkshire. Right. Yeah. And that, uh, that kind of brings up another thing I, I found interesting in the book was the cost structure behind insurance companies. Um, because, um, you know, underwriting profits in the insurance insurance industry I guess the industry in general goes through so much ups and downs and Buffett through the years has really talked about um, the culture, being able to say no to business. I mean, say no to sales and be willing to reduce volume, I guess. Um, the culture I knew was there, but I was curious, like how far could you actually take that? Um, I figured at some point, you know, you can't accept such a, how I was wondering, I guess, how low sales could drop and for how long a period. And looking at it in the mid seventies in the book, I, I guess I, I picked a time frame, and I think in the, it was the mid seventies where the, uh, the overhead of Berkshire was like 30 to 35% of uh, premiums. So the expense ratio, but three quarters of that was commissions and brokerage expenses. So I think if sales were zero, you know, the loss ratio, the losses on policy should be zero. And I, I believe the brokerage expenses and commission should be zero too. That's three quarters of your overhead. So you're left with just, you know, a quarter of, uh, of your overhead expense, which I don't know exactly, but in the time frame I might have wrote in the book might have been 12 million or somewhere along the lines about what C's Candy was producing in profits annually. They had other businesses besides C's too, but so basically sales could be zero forever and C's and maybe a, another business or two could subsidize insurance overhead forever. So I found that interesting too. The culture was there, but also like the cost structure, Berkshire's overhead and kind of the insurance general insurance industries overhead in general really allowed for uh, to focus on profitability instead of growth. I'm curious to hear about what was your favorite company 
to study and that you wrote about and why? I think my favorite investment they made was the Detroit International Bridge Company. Uh, I grew up in Michigan, um, so maybe that's maybe I'm a little biased there, but um, he c compared a lot of businesses over the years to a toll bridge. So it was kind of fun to look at an actual toll bridge. And <laughs> yeah. they bought, I want to say close to 20% of the business and uh, tried to kind of take control of it, but in, uh, they only held it for a short time period because it went, another investor took them private, outbid them. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the, the toll bridge, um, you know, it, it goes from Detroit to Canada. Um, and it dominated the uh, commercial traffic. And um, the, shortly after it was built, it went, the bridge went bankrupt. I think it was in the early 30s, you know, probably close, close to the Great Depression. Um, went bankrupt and emerged. And then ever since then, they were, you know, had little to no debt. So by the time Buffett invested, it just was sitting with a ton of cash, maybe, um, you know, close to half of its assets might have been cash. I can't remember now, but it still had a huge double digit return on assets and a good return on equity. And, you know, if you could take some of that cash out of there, um, it was really impressive uh, returns there. Um, and that was one thing um, Berkshire was able to do is, um, you know, a standalone business might hold on to a lot of cash just, you know, to be safe. But if you're part of Berkshire, you don't really need that much cash on hand um, if you happen to have like, you know, a tough year, you know, Berkshire has profits coming in from all these different businesses and, uh, a lot of liquidity that can, uh, the company can take advantage. So I know a lot of these businesses like, uh, national indemnity, maybe, um, at, at some points might, might've pushed its leverage operating leverage a little bit. Uh, but it was okay because within Berkshire, the operating leverage was just fine. The, the leverage was, was okay. Um, so it allowed the conglomerate structure allowed like companies to not overcapitalize companies could definitely, uh, you know, not have to keep so much reserves on hand. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I think, weren't you saying the other day that the first couple of years that Buffett was running Berkshire, the price didn't really go too far anywhere, right? Yeah. So you could talk about that. How, I mean, in terms of the, uh, so people focus on the, because he printed the book value for so many years people may not have realized until recently how the actual quoted price of the stock did in the few years after Buffett took it over. So take us back then Buffett takes over Berkshire. He's already, I mean, hedge fund managers weren't celebrities and stuff, but he must've been one of the better known, well-known yeah. uh, managers of a private partnership by that point. People who knew a lot about those kinds of things would have known he was a good investor. He takes over what was a net net. People know it's at, you know, below price to book and all that sort of stuff. And he starts doing things with it. How does the stock actually do over the next five years or so? Yeah, that was also a really interesting um, thing to look at. And I think investors, professional investors can learn a lot from that period. Hmm. Um, so when he was ma managing the hedge fund, BPL, um, Berkshire, the stock did really well. Um, but he, he folded BPL in 69, I think it was. And Berkshire stock, I believe, was at 40. And five years later in 74, it was at 40 as well. So five years later, zero change in stock price, yeah. which is five years a long time, which uh, reading a book, like a history book, you might be, you know, you kind of gloss over five years. Like, okay, he's super rich, very successful. Yeah. <laughs> we but, talk about that all the time. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you guys know, or in the news, you know, the market goes down 1% and, you know, it could be a big headline for the day. One day, an hour or two, sometimes like people, you know, look at the changes and, and could freak out, you know, in such a short term, five years is a long time. And there were people who knew Buffett really well. I believe one investor kind of famously uh, sold some of his shares in 74 at, you know, 40 bucks after it wasn't moving. And I believe it was one of the investors that helped him do some scuttlebutt for American Express. So he saw Buffett up close and personal and saw how great this investor was, saw his track record, but uh, five years of no returns. Um, I, I think it scared an investor like that. And uh, I think people might've been concerned too, because, you know, he kind of said he was retiring in 69 when he folded the, the partnership. So with the stock not moving five years after being retired, people might've actually started to think, okay, he's not really, 
trying or caring anymore maybe if, if um, you just look at stock price. But if you look at the book value, you look at um, the business, how the business changed, like a ton of value was created over those five years. Um, by 74, I mean, they owned Seas Candy by then. So that, I mean, the textile business was not worth, I mean, not that big a percentage of assets anymore. National Indemnity, um, Blue Chip and, and Seas and all them made up a lot higher percentage of assets by 74. So in the book, I tried to show how much the business changed in those five years versus, uh, you know, the stock price not going anywhere, which was pretty crazy. And um, earlier I mentioned there was a lot of periods or a lot of investments where it didn't look like huge bargains, but 73, 74 was a time period where Berkshire looked like a bargain and blue chip looked like um, a ridiculous bargain. And, and some of the stocks they bought were uh, uh, looked really interesting as well. Yeah. So you did cover a couple um, other investments in marketable securities. So you talked about Washington post, right? Which is a, a marketable security investment, but kind of turned into a permanent thing. But the other one that I was interested in because they, I feel like has not been talked about much in the history of Berkshire is Pinkerton's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that Pinkerton was interesting too. And one reason I was interested in um, researching that one further is because uh, I believe it was for blue chip, uh, it was a, you know, pretty big position. Um, and they owned a large percentage of the company. And in one of the annual reports, I mean, uh, one of the annual meetings, I think, you know, on CNBC, you can go back and listen to some of the really old meetings. And on there, they discuss how they almost bought Pinkerton's. I think they said um, at the time they did security for airports and stuff. And, and I think they said they were worried about a big lawsuit. They, I can't remember if they mentioned like a terrorist attack at an airport or not, mm -hmm. um, or if uh, they were just saying lawsuits in general um, is the reason they didn't want to fully own Pinkerton's. Uh, but I think they, they definitely would have if, um, if I think that was the only reason they uh, didn't acquire it fully. But um, that was a, a big brand name, I guess, in, in their space. They started out as a detective agency um, and got a lot of fame or infamy through the years, both from like detective novels that kind of, you know, uh, maybe glorified agents um, and uh, um, got into some infamy, I guess, through the years trying to break strikes for some of the big industrial companies. Um, but um, that was another company where it took very little capital to run high returns, but they had a ton of cash on their balance sheet. I guess, you know, some of those businesses, they can't find places to reinvest that capital and it makes a perfect fit for a Berkshire holding because Buffett can then, you know, reinvest the profits elsewhere. Um, but yeah, that was one I had fun reading a little bit about and, and researching. And why do you think it's not known more about, like talked about more? Is it, it was it held in a Munger company before the merger or? Yeah, I think maybe it's not as well known because it was within Blue Chip. Okay. That could be, could be one reason. Um, I guess maybe they didn't talk about it as much through the years could be another, but the price of Pinkerton's um, reacted pretty wildly in the 73, 74 kind of time frame when the, the overall market declined, you know, cause sales, we're doing fine, probably growing a little bit, same with profits, but you know, the stock price um, definitely dropped by more than half within just a year. It, it might've even been closer to 60 or 70%. I can't exactly remember now, but uh, that's when Berkshire, that's when, you know, Blue Chip, Buffett and Munger got involved with Pinkerton's and um, uh, made it a, a longer term holding. Got it. I'm kind of curious to hear about if other people want to do, you know, just research for themselves. First, of course, read the book, but research from themselves in going back, you know, in time. So I'm kind of curious how you came across all those old Moody's manuals. Yeah, it was hard to find a lot of the and data. And can you email them to me after the show? <laughs> I'm not sure if I can email them, uh, but a lot of, it was tough to find. Um, I emailed a lot of libraries. So I started with some of the big name libraries, you know, like a, like a Harvard, a lot of the big college libraries and, you know, Seize Candy, if it was a California company, I'd uh, email some of the libraries that are closer to the headquarters over there, or, you know, like libraries near Omaha, a lot of emails. And I did a freedom of information act request with the sec. And this, uh, was free. And, uh, I got thousands of pages of the, um, documents behind the investigation in the seventies. Uh, what was it? Um, um, 
blue uh, the Wesco acquisition. You know how? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's an SEC investigation there. And I guess enough people have asked for those documents where they put them all into PDFs on a CD. No way. That's funny. I got to ask for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mailed me the CD uh, for free and you get transcripts, I guess, of Buffett and Munger, Andrew reports thrown in there. That's where wow. some of my blue chip stamps reports I was struggling to find, but they're in that uh, request in that CD there. Um, Moody's manuals were at a local library, uh, Nashville, a couple libraries there had AMBES manuals for insurance and Moody's manuals there. So I got to go in person and, and look at those. Um, so it was, it was tough to find, but mostly a lot of emails seeing um, who had them. And a lot of times I didn't want to travel to Boston, to Harvard, you know, to do that. So they, you could pay to have them scan reports for you and, and mail them. So I tried to be cost conscious uh, with what I paid for, but also I, I, uh, instead of traveling, I definitely paid for some reports. And I should mention too, after I published a book, I wish I saw it before. There's a website and the, the person has a Twitter handle. It's something about like the Oracle classroom, something like that. I'll have to uh, look at it after, but um, that website has a lot of these Moody's manuals and reports on his website already. So I wish I would have found that before the book because that would save me some time. Yeah, that would have been nice, right? That's funny. Do you um, have any more questions for Jacob related to Berkshire? Yeah. So what do you think about uh, has changed in the years that you covered of Berkshire, right? So the book, the book runs for the first, uh, how many years? What, what are the years that you have on the title there? Yeah, 1955 to 85. So 10 years before Buffett took over and then the textile mill closed in 85. So I thought that was a fitting ending for the time period. Okay, so what do you think has changed from the pre-1985 Berkshire to the post-1985 Berkshire? Yeah, well, the size of Berkshire for sure was the, the main thing. And he's always talked about how size was an anchor um, over time. So the type of investments they made and the acquisitions they made, I guess, had to change a little bit over time. But um, maybe the, the number one main thing could be, I think, the float was able, they had more options with their float as they got bigger starting in the 90s and in the 2000s because um, they were just more and more diversified. Um, that comes to mind. And then, uh, you know, nowadays their size is just so big that that's kind of an anchor. And I think something I'm interested in, I really haven't studied the utility business, you know, Berkshire Hathaway Energy too much, but that's becoming uh, more and more a bigger part of the business, I guess. And over time, I think they're set to allocate a lot more capital that way. Um, which is lower return, but it's more guaranteed, more likely return, I guess. So I think maybe a long way to answer your question is their return on capital is going down, but maybe it's becoming more sure or more likely. Mm -hmm. And then like, uh, what would you say this book taught you, the experience of writing this book taught you about like, um, say someone wanted to try to copy Buffett and what he did. What did it teach you about how realistic that is and how things are different now versus opportunities he saw then and what, like, whether that's something that people could really do? Because it's questions that people ask all the time. But you actually saw how he did from the beginning through now, like what he actually had to do, what the actual deals were. Um, what do you think someone would do if they were trying to create something like Berkshire diversified compounding sort of thing? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the, my answer would be don't try to get his returns that he got in this in his stocks in the early days you know 30 percent returns in stocks high 20s um you're not i don't think many not many people are going to get that high of returns um but i think it's very reasonable for people um more slowly and steadily to like compound their capital and business owners i think uh i think very easily business owners could form more of you know a conglomerate type structure where you have uh you're retaining all your earnings you're reinvesting um decentralized headquarters where all the profits are coming in to reinvest into new businesses and i think it just makes businesses safer one from um you know diversifying your earnings from different industries and uh um you know retaining your earnings to have uh, more places to to invest in the future. I think that piece, uh, you can, I think businesses could have long-term really good results, but I think it's going to be slower than 
what Buffett did. And, you know, so rates should, expectations should be lower. Rates of return should be lower. But I think, I don't see why there's not more uh, investors or companies going more the conglomerate structure like Berkshire. Got it. Cool. And I'm just curious. I mean, so since you spent so much time studying him, if you, if, what do you think, where do you think he would start today if he were starting out or, you know, let's say he was just leaving um, to go back to Omaha from Graham Newman, you know, what do you think he'd be focusing his time on? Yeah, uh, I guess with my own portfolio, I'm tr that's what I spent a lot of time thinking about is what would he be doing today? Like, where would he be looking? What areas? And so I think it'd be the smallest stocks, the most overlooked stocks, and a lot internationally. So my, uh, most of my portfolio, the biggest position would be like, uh, I've invested in Japanese stocks, uh, Japanese net nets, which you guys have talked about on the podcast quite a bit. Um, seems like a lot of bargains over there. And um, I think he would be looking at those type of situations internationally and in smaller cap companies, overlooked companies. Um, I think there's still plenty of opportunity um, even though, uh, someone like me is not as, not as good as Buffett is. I think there's still quite a bit of opportunity in that space, uh, that would be maybe similar to some of the things he looked at back in his day. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, what, what makes Buffett so good? Do you think, you know, and I, I've, I've heard everyone has sort of their own version of this and I'll tell you what I think Jeff would say, but I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on like, what do you think makes him so good? Yeah, I think I'm stealing this from what he said, um, but focus. I think uh, he was uh, like, he, tr he truly loved what he did. So maybe that's one, um, the love of, of the game, I guess. But uh, he really did focus in all his time in that. I think someone like Charlie Munger had great results, but he had less focus as he got older. Um, definitely as he got older, but um, – yeah, Jeff's talk about that. Jeff's like, I think Munger was focused on investing for like, what, 10 years of his life, maybe? Uh, like 15 well, years, like a very small well, amount. Of, yeah, I mean, you know, it, like really focused. That it was the only thing he was doing? Yeah, I don't know. And he was focused on getting rich for maybe 30 years. I don't know that it was a lot longer than that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that focus and he was not afraid if he was looking at, you know, Delta Duck Club. I think explaining that investment's pretty funny to listen to nowadays. And I think people would laugh at him at the time he was not afraid, uh, you know, to get advice from, I guess he was not afraid to look foolish at, in the time period. He wasn't afraid to have five years where his stock went nowhere. Um, so focus. And, and he also created an environment where no one was pestering him. If his stock price went nowhere for five years, uh, I think he structured his, his day and his life that he was able to go for the long term. Yeah, no, I think that is obviously, um, you know, very important. It's just, it's crazy to think, I mean, who would have imagined, I don't, obviously not even him when he first started investing in Berkshire Hathaway, that it would become what it is today, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's another thing I found this, interesting. This, this, you know, crappy net net that, you know, has issues going on and he has to take control of the company and cut costs and come right. in and do different things. I mean, it's just crazy to think about. Yeah. And if you look at the Fortune 500, you know, the top 10 companies I, I displayed in my book, um, he blew past all of them. So any company that's bigger today, I believe, you know, was created, you know, after he first took over Berkshire. So it's, it's pretty crazy. It was a small company when he took over Berkshire and any company that was around or a large company at the time, uh, he, he blew right past them. Uh, so it, it's pretty crazy. If you exclude the internet, I think, um, he, uh, he blew past everyone else. Got it. Um, do you have any final questions for Jacob? Nope, that's it. So I do have one final question, and it's probably the most important question, and that is, when's the next book coming out? <laughs> I'm not exactly sure. I, I have maybe two pages written in a new book. Really? I don't know if I'll actually get around to finishing it or not, but right now I'm interested in learning more about Berkshire Hathaway Energy. And I feel like maybe that could turn into a short story ebook kind of thing. I'm not exactly sure, but maybe into the history of mid-American energy that they bought and uh, maybe look at, he owned some utility businesses as stocks in the seventies, maybe looking at those. And I don't know if it'll turn into something to share or not, but that's where my next project might be. 
Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jacob, for coming on the podcast. We're a big fan of your work. Where can people find out more about you if they want to like follow you either on Twitter or where can they find your book? How can they get a hold of you? Yeah, I have a blog, uh, Smurf Investments. That's S-M-R-F Investments. And I think the Twitter handle is the same. I'm not exactly sure, but I'm on, on Twitter and, and have a blog too. So, uh, And the title of the book? Capital Allocation, The Financials of a New England Textile Mill. Okay. And they can find it at Amazon? Amazon. Yep. That's right. right. Amazon.com. Cool. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with all three of us here today on the Focus Compounding Podcast. I'm going to put all of that information in the show notes on the podcast side of things. And then of course on YouTube, I'll have that in the about Mm -hmm. section. So Jacob, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Next time we're in Nashville, we'll definitely uh, have to link up again and talk more about Buffett. But I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with all of us here today. And we will see you in the next podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk general investing concepts. To get even more content from me and Jeff, sign up for the Focus Compounding app. The Focus Compounding app costs $7.95 a month. It comes with a bunch of 2,000-word articles from Jeff each week, a fresh batch of five-minute videos from the both of us, along with one bonus extra long episode of the podcast each Saturday and immediate access to our complete backlog of 200 plus episodes. To sign up, go to focuscompounding.com slash app or wherever apps are sold. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next podcast.